Hello, my name is Leslie Goodburn. I'm a Pancreatic Cancer UK supporter, and you're here today listening to some podcasts that we're doing. The reason that we're doing the podcast is because there are two small words, pancreatic cancer, two small words that actually have a massive impact on people, that cause devastation, that create psychological, emotional and physical pain. Before 2014, I didn't really know a great deal about pancreatic cancer. I knew that it was one of the cancers that had a poor survival rate, but that was probably all I knew. In 2014, my husband Seth was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. We were thrust into a world of palliative and end-of-life care, and unfortunately, 33 days after diagnosis, Seth died from pancreatic cancer. Seth didn't really stand a chance, couldn't get treatment because actually the disease was diagnosed at such a late stage that there wasn't the possibility to have any other outcome than Seth was going to die. So after Seth died, spent a lot of time thinking about how to support Pancreatic Cancer UK to raise awareness of the disease, of the signs and symptoms, to raise money. So I've spent the last four years working with various different organisations, getting GPs trained, raising funds through doing things with Emma Bridgewater Pottery, doing charity balls, um, standing in the, in the street during Awareness Month and giving out leaflets to raise awareness. Um, Last year we did some work around patient stories, this year we're doing the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts. The podcasts are designed to give everyone who listens to them an idea about what the pancreas does, why it's important, what its function is, what happens when cancer forms, what the signs and symptoms of the disease are, how people can recognise those recognise those signs and symptoms so that they can go to the GP and hopefully get diagnosed early enough for treatment to be an option. We're going to talk to some of the UK's leading clinicians, nurses, allied health professionals, experts in various different fields, and most importantly, we're going to talk to some patients and families who've experienced the disease. So over the course of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, which is November, the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer podcasts will be broadcast and it'll give you all an opportunity to understand the disease much better, to think about how you can support raising awareness going forward and to spread the word about pancreatic cancer and hopefully make sure that in the future many more people are diagnosed earlier and people are given the chance for treatment, the chance that Seth never had. I'm Charlotte Foster, podcaster and journalist, and I'm going to let you into a little secret. This episode of Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcast wasn't supposed to happen. Well, I say wasn't supposed to happen. This one was never planned, but then something happened. I got an email very shortly after the first episode was released, the beginning of the month. And it was from a woman called Rachel. Rachel, I'm going to start off by telling people how you've ended up on the podcast. Because it's uh, you got in touch with me um, because we have a mutual friend who pointed you in the direction of the first podcast that, that came out. My colleagues at work all know that my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at the very beginning of June. And... Um, 
I've been doing a whole variety of activities over this month. And as soon as he learnt what you were doing, he pointed me in your direction saying, you need to speak to this person. It'd be really good for you to have a chat with her. And that's how I, I got to here to speak to you. Yes. And then I convinced you it'd be a good idea to have that chat on the podcast and <laughs> on, on the podcast <laughs> yeah yeah so it went from a, a chat to hear about what you were doing to being actually on the podcast so yeah well first of all thank you so much for agreeing to do it and I just think it'd be really good for people to, to sort of hear a bit about your story and especially your dad so we'll start off if that's okay tell me about about your dad what's he like <laughs> um stoic I think is one way sometimes uh, he my, my dad's retired dentist and as a kid I mean I can't ever remember him ever being ill ever um he, he wasn't a, a mega fit healthy person you know he drank a little bit and he'd have an occasional cigar but I mean I remember as a kid I can't remember him ever having a day off sick I can't remember him even having a cold I'm aware of him having a backache once and that's about it um so he's he's always been incredibly hard working and he retired um a few years ago um and was really looking forward and is 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 looking forward to a retirement of caravanning and looking after his labrador and also fishing which is a, a thing he's taken up over the last couple of years sounds like a perfect retirement <laughs> it is yes yeah, especially the labrador the dogs the dogs wonderful fishing i'm not as bothered about but i can i'll take the dog for a walk Absolutely. And then, as you mentioned, your dad got a diagnosis in June. How how did that diagnosis come about? Um, my dad was diagnosed with diabetes um, quite a few years ago now. I, I, so he'd been having injected insulin and they gradually wore, took him off that and they put him on tablets. And he's never felt right on the tablets. He always felt a little bit ill. And he started to feel quite ill and he started to go yellow. And basically he went to the doctors and they they looked at him, and said, oh, you know, come back in a few days. And dad said, no, this is really not right. And I think it was one of the practice nurses eventually said, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this on these tablets. I'm sending you to the doctor. And the doctor then sent him straight to the hospital then and there. And that afternoon, they said, you've got pancreatic cancer. They 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 took him into a side room and, and broke the news to him. Um, so, so it was a, from, a, from a moment of them thinking that it was just his tablets for the diabetes to you've got you've got cancer. So was that diagnosed at A&E so then? I don't think it was A&E. It was a specialist ward. Um, my, my one of the many things that has happened is dad lives um, up in near Newcastle and it was actually um, I think it was at the, the the hospital in Middlesbrough the James Cook hospital I believe it was there where he was it's, it's one of these things that fine detail I don't always remember and I was actually on on holiday and all of this was going on and they they kept it from from me because they, they didn't want to spoil the holiday which was ridiculous that's um, so, so family isn't it I know, yeah, it's typical, typical dad getting all this news and all he can think about is don't tell Rachel she's on holiday. Um, yeah, so it, it was pretty much then and there and he was taken into hospital immediately. So what happened next? And he's, he's in hospital, was it going from thinking that it's just it might be a problem with some diabetic tablets? No, it's pancreatic cancer. What happens? Well, he was given a very bleak, bleak picture initially like they were saying he, he was given the impression that he might not get get out of hospital um and that that kind of was on the the friday saturday and then by the saturday afternoon um somebody said well 
there's a chance that there are there's some treatment and then kind of over the next couple of days it, it evolved that he he spoke to a consultant and the consultant says from the scans it looks like it's operable and this was something because I mean we, we don't have experience of pancreatic cancer in the family um, this was something that you kind of hear pancreatic cancer and you think oh my god that's the worst one that you can get of all the horrible diseases you know that's that's the death sentence and then all of a sudden from this roller coaster of you're not going to be leaving hospital he was suddenly given this actually there might be some treatment it might be operable from your scans we think it is um, at the same time they were trying to get all of his kind of uh, all of his fluids sorted and get some food in him that he was actually able to kind of digest because obviously you know having spoken to everyone he'd lost a massive amount of weight and he'd been trying to lose weight but he he hadn't really wanted to lose that much so they tried sorting out all of that kind of thing and at the same time were saying there may be a possibility of an operation um so it was it was a roller coaster ride for him and his wife for my stepmom I think you know one minute you're told you're never going to leave hospital and the next minute they're saying actually there might be an operation that I think it's about 10% of people diagnosed are eligible for the operation. Um, and it's the one he actually had was called a Whipple, which you may have spoken to other people with experience of it. Um, yeah. So it was, suddenly there was something that could help. And so the operation has happened, hasn't it? It did. Yes. So what happened, he stayed in hospital for a while um, and actually was then sent home. Um, whilst he got back up into kind of a, a fitter condition and then he was taken back into hospital and it was it was about a 10-hour operation um, he went in the night before and spent the night before on something like the ward where they take in people who are having a tonsillectomies isn't it so it was a bit of a strange because there was lots of people around who were kind of in a quite a different position to him um, but he was then transferred onto the the main ward at, at Newcastle at the Freeman um, and he had I think the consultant said, I think the consultant was there for about eight hours, but he was kind of operated on from start to finish. It was about a 10 hour operation. And he now supports a huge, sad, sad smile across his tummy from, you know, all the way across. Um, and he was, he again, you talk about things being fortunate and then you think none of this be fortunate but he was in the fortunate position that he could have the operation he's one in, he's in one of the best centers for this treatment in the country if not Europe uh, I mean the, the, the Freeman hospital was just phenomenal and his consultant Mr Hammond was just absolutely fantastic um, and they actually didn't have to take the whole of his pancreas they just took part of it so he was left with a small bit of pancreas and I've now started I started reading about what was going to happen and I never really realized what the pancreas did um and it's fascinating to kind of fascinating but you have to remember you have to kind of forget when you're reading about it that it's your dad but fascinating to read about what the pancreas is and what it does and how it's plumbed into your system and people often ask me well what is a whipple and I I kind of describe it as well basically they they do a, a, a huge incision mark they sort through all of your bits and unplug some bits and plug other bits in and then plug you all back up together and sew you back up having taken hopefully the, the cancer and again he because the cancer hadn't actually left his pancreas what had actually happened is the tumor had grown and it had blocked his bile duct but hadn't actually grown into his bile duct so that's why he'd gone yellow and that's why they managed to catch it at the time they did um, it wasn't anything anything else so they were actually able to remove 
as far as we know, um, all of the tumour from, from the pancreas by removing a large amount of the pancreas. This... And then, I, I don't know if you like me to, I can... No, I mean, carry on. What, what followed on was, um, <laughs> it's one of these things, he then had a few days in, in intensive care, and, or it's, I, I think they had a different name for it there, and you have one nurse and, and one one patient, and then he was back on the ward. Um, he had He had what's called delirium, I don't know if you've had any other uh, people you've spoken to. So one of the painkillers he's on basically gave him paranoia and he, he escaped off the ward one day. Um, Blimey. He escaped off the ward having just had this, you know, 10 hour operation. <laughs> he made it outside and would only go back on the ward if escorted by security, which was just like one minute you're thinking it was happening. And the next minute he was calling my stepmom with this delirium and he basically got what 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 is paranoia and it was really interesting the way it it, it manifested itself because I've spoken to other people who've had these particularly strong painkillers I have a close friend who's had one and he he described what he felt and saw and dad had something very similar my dad's always watched detective tv programs you know vera and all of the kind of the scandinavian detective things and he was basically playing out some of that Everybody was out to get him and there was a bomb plot in Newcastle and you're going to have to watch out the boats being sold twice and all these really weird things. I mean, he says now he still has moments where he's quite panicky. Um, but yeah, so he, he had that. So they, they changed his drugs immediately um, and actually took him off the very, very strong painkiller. So then, you know, not really much more than, well, less than a week after this massive operation, he was down to a little bit of the oromorph and, and that was about it. Um, but that that kind of got out of his system and he gradually got back to normal. But I mean, the consultant rang me. I happened to be at their house one day and he rang me and was having a conversation with me about, you know, has your dad ever suffered from anything like this before? And we're just going to give it a couple of days, let the really strong painkiller leave his system and see what happens. And he gradually, it subsided and you know, he says now he has slight panics every now and then and he still puts it down to that very, very strong painkiller. Gosh, blimey. Yeah. Now, I know you mentioned about doing your research once your dad had, you know, once you got yeah. the diagnosis. It's not exactly the same, but my dad had a stroke when I was just 16, 17. Mm. And things I've learned about brains and brain injuries, because it's, <laughs> it's what you do, is it? Because you want to learn and you want to understand, yes. don't you? And people yeah. sort of look at you and go, why would you want to know about it? Because And I was there going, because I want to know things are going to be okay, actually. Yes. And there's a little yeah, bit of the, that. The, the, the one thing we were told, and well, Dad, Dad and Gillian were told, was, you know, don't look at the stats. Everybody's an individual. If you look at the stats, you will upset yourself. And that is the one time for the for the challenges I'm doing. They're just, just two days before they started, I was doing something at work and I was doing a little handout to give out at a cake sale. And that was the one time I did actually see some of the stats. And I'm a mathematician. I did a math degree. I, I work in maths educational research. And that was the one time where I really upset myself because I started to look at some of the, 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 the stats and I just was like, how can this not have moved forward in the last 40 years? And how can it be so bleak? And how do people not know about this? Because I knew nothing about it. And yeah, you, you do. And then you research what the pancreas is. And then all of his drugs, I want to know, well, what does that one do? And what does that one do? And that one's to counteract this one. And this one's to do that one. And, you know, it's, you, you can't help but be 
fascinated might not be the right word, but fascinated in what's going on and why what's happening. It's about arming yourself, isn't it? A little bit that yes. knowing knowing sometimes is better than not knowing, even if it's yes. not the greatest stuff. Now you mentioned your challenges. You've spent this month um, doing lots of lots and lots of different things, one a day. Tell us a little bit about these challenges, please, Rachel. <laughs> um, well. Myself and my brother signed up for the London Prudential 100-mile bike ride for Pancreatic Cancer UK next year. And I was thinking, right, well, I, I need to start thinking about my fundraising. And it just happened to be that PCUK sent me an email because we're on the, on, the, on the bike team for them. And it said, oh, November is Pancreatic Cancer's Raising Awareness Month. And I thought, well, I, I should be able to do something with like that. What could I do? And just in a fit of just... I don't know what. Madness? <laughs> I said, I know what. I'm going to do a challenge. Yeah, yes. I'm going to do a challenge every day. And I'm going to try and challenge myself with a variety of challenges. Every single day I do one thing. Some of them um, may be quite simple and easy to organise. Some less so, some more so. And I asked my, my colleagues at work and friends and family to suggest some ideas. I had a few ideas and colleagues at work. I, I started a spreadsheet and said, right, if you put some ideas in there, and I just basically then got my calendar out and just said, right, around visiting dad, seeing family, working, what can I do every single day? Um, and some of them started, you know, the, the first one was to cycle 60 miles in a day, which I, I started cycling once a week when I can to work 30 miles to practice for the 100 mile next year. So I did it. I cycled to work and then I cycled home again. And I was really fortunate. My husband did it, did the cycle back with me. And he crazily did his on his Brompton, which was great because it meant he was quite slow. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so I, I was having to slow down for him, which I was quite pleased about. And then they've ranged from um, I wore a purple wig at work for a day and the rest of my team that I work with, they all got purple wigs. And then um, I've eaten purple food for a day. I've drunk purple drinks. Most things have got the purple thing. I've, I've just yarn bombed the library at work this evening before I left. Um, and then there were some that I've had to really push myself. So I slept outside one night, which was miserable. Um, and that was really interesting because as, as, a, as a group, my, my employer, we support one of the homeless charities within Cambridge, Jimmy's Night Shelter. And that really brought home what we're doing there with them because I, I mean, I was undercover, but I had open sides where I was because it was pouring with rain, but actually waking up at five o'clock in the morning, hearing the rain hitting the plastic bag that was covering me was just, that was a really an eye opener for me. And um, we did things like we did, we did some silliness at work. We've, we've done like roly polies around the lawn. And again, friends at work supported me on that one. And then I did things like I, I've, try to ride a unicycle I'm still supporting a bruise from that Ooh, um that'd be then... purple <laughs> yes it is very purple um and then I, I I'm also I suppose what you might call arachnophobic I'd I get very panicky about large spiders in the house and uh I decided I was going to hold a tarantula Ooh. um and that that kind of got put there and then I thought right I better find a tarantula and I was really fortunate there's um uh uh, I suppose it's an animal experience group who do a lot of school visits who I just found on online as you do mm. near Ely and they let me hold their their giant huge one you have to hold in two hands tarantula oh, called I'm Lucy. shivering <laughs> yeah the photo for that I still that I think of all of them the the sleeping outside really hit home kind of wow this is what people are doing tonight and 
that really hit home. But then the one I think I'm probably most proud of is the fact that I held a tarantula without crying or dropping it. Um, unfortunately, the video is not shareable because I do use a range of expletives at the end. More to just say, <laughs> oh, my goodness me, I did it. So I haven't been able to share the video yet with that. But there's lots of photographs of it. Um, and yeah, it's it's just been really good. I mean, my, my, my work colleagues, we have an internal group called YAML. So it's a bit like Facebook, but just for people who work in, in, in for Cambridge Assessment. And I put loads of pictures up there. And the support I've had has been phenomenal from colleagues. And then I put it on Twitter and Facebook and just, you know, old school friends have contacted me and say, oh, this is brilliant. And I put lots of photographs and people are saying, oh, I can't wait to see that one. And I can't wait to see that one. And it's it's been phenomenal because we've also had people come and speak to me and say, you know, it's amazing that you're doing all these challenges. It's real commitment. And then they start talking about their own experience, their own experiences. So I was, um, had a lady come and speak to me, unfortunately, on the day when I was doing the 24 hour silence, which was very difficult. Um, and she she proceeded to tell me that she'd lost her father to pancreatic cancer a few years ago. And it meant a lot to her that I was doing this and trying to raise, raise awareness. Um and then what I do on that group as well and on various other social media, I've been just sharing when there's been some of the the um, petitions that they've organised. I just share those. So I try to kind of make it relatively lighthearted, but at the same time, make sure that I'm kind of passing on the information I get given. And it, I think I said to you earlier, it really hit home tonight is as I was doing the yarn bombing, I had some people walk behind me and, and one of them said, oh, that's for pancreatic cancer it's it's there raise awareness and I don't know who the lady was but it was just really nice for me to hear that people were talking about it because that was the point it was raising awareness of of the of 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 this horrible disease and you you've definitely definitely done that then if someone's paid <laughs> you know paid attention and, and recognized it what does your dad make of all of this that you're up to um he thinks I'm absolutely crazy <laughs> I send him pictures every now and then, and I, my my dad, since particularly since being ill, has discovered emojis, and I uh-huh. do get sent a whole range of strange emojis. I mean, he's never really sent text messages and stuff, but I think because he tends to use his phone maybe more than he used to, um, he has sent some crazy crazy emojis back to me. I think he's he's kind of a little bit dumbstruck of what on earth am I doing, especially. I mean, you, know, you you work full time, and he's like, "How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Don't make yourself ill." And um, but at the same time, I think he's he's had quite a lot. It's it's given him something to laugh about because you all need something to laugh about, no matter how bleak the situation. It's you have to you have to have something to smile, and so various photographs and videos sent to him. And uh, I was up at his house when I had to drink purple. And uh, was a lot of berry tea was drunk that day and red wine later on. I decided red wine was purple. That counts. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I was trying to learn Icelandic when I was up at his house. Uh, and I think he thought that was quite funny as I was proceeding to try and mime and speak in this completely weird language. <laughs> Do you remember the yeah. um the the ash incident, the Icelandic ash? Yes, I had to read out the name of that volcano. <laughs> so oh, I, well, I feel was... for you of learning Icelandic. Yeah, well, I mean that that was Darren's fault that he said, "Oh, we were saying what language you speak." And I mean, I I went to university in in Spain and I speak a bit of French. And whenever I go traveling, I always try and learn the pleasantries. And I said I want it to be something that I've never tried before. And he said Icelandic. And then I did the research. He's like, it's less than five hundred thousand people in the world speak it, and three hundred thousand of those live in Iceland. The others are all around the world. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, and I found a great uh, 
YouTube as you do and was learning from that. But yes, it, it wasn't. But again, another colleague from work joined me in that. So she came into work on the Monday morning and we said, you know, hello and God modern and all that we're saying. And then at lunchtime and, you know, and the most lovely thing, goodbye is bless, bless. Oh, that's beautiful. That now just like bless, bless. And I just think that's if I don't remember anything of my Icelandic, I'm going to remember bless, bless because it was just lovely. <laughs> and how is your dad doing at the moment? He's doing okay. Um, he had a, a bit of a, an issue after he came out of hospital. Um, they watch you very carefully after you've had the Whipple procedure to make sure there's no, it sounds grim, but no leakage of any, any things because there's various things that can happen. And he, he was really sick um, for about the first week and he was being violently ill then. And what they actually did is they readmitted him and he was in hospital for a couple more weeks and they completely, they, they reset him. It, it, they, they starved him completely. He wasn't even allowed a sip of water. He was nil by mouth for quite some time and they gave him drips and he had one of the ones, I don't know the proper name, where it actually goes from into your neck and down. Um, and that it's almost like they press reset and they completely emptied his stomach um, and they were worried that maybe it was blocked or something, but they completely emptied it. And he actually had a, a tube down his throat and various things. Um, and that seemed to do it. And he remembers now sausages. I think he had a sausage. I think it was sausage and mash was his first food after all of that. And he said it was the most memorable meal of his life. And my dad loves fish and chips, but he said nothing has got it on that first sausage. Um, and he came, he's come home now and he's been put on chemo. So he has... Um, chemo which you can actually have at home so it's tablets uh, so he has two weeks on the tablets one week off and during that week off he has a blood test on the Tuesday and he sees somebody on the Thursday sometimes it's the oncologist sometimes it, it's another member of the the team that are, are looking after him um, and he's he's doing okay I mean chemo affects you know you, you can get this you see this list of side effects you're like oh my god um, and I think it's you generally, you know, you gradually feel just grottier and grottier. Um, and it's, it's weird things like he's he's lost his fingerprints. So he has yeah. no fingerprints. So I, I immediately said, oh, we can go and do a burglary and no one will catch you. And apparently <laughs> the consultant said the same thing to him. So I've obviously got the same sense of humour as a consultant. But he's had that, he's had problems with his feet. But, you know, when, when you think about what this doing, so as far as I can understand from the particular chemo drug he's doing it's to make sure that if there are any other cancer cells anywhere in his body that it stops them splitting or the cells from splitting it, it should deal with that because obviously it's it does just get everywhere um he's he's kept his most of the time kept his um sense of appetite you know he's still got his appetite his tastes have changed you put a meal and it's really funny because you put a meal in front of him and he goes "Ugh, disgusting I'm like oh my god you've turned into my grandmother <laughs> um, but he he does so he does have he's he's really changed you know some of the things he used to think were his favorite food now he can't stand whereas other things I mean he used to love a corned beef sandwich and now can't go near it whereas other things he didn't used to like but he's had hankering so my my stepmom how she's managed to keep her patience you know he says oh I really fancy some scones and can you make some scones she's like right and then she gets the car and goes to the supermarket and buys the ingredients and comes home and you know the next day can't touch scones so she's she's just been an angel looking after him um I mean they, they live quite far away from me it's about three three and a half hours drive from me so I kind of go up when I can but she's she's there all the time obviously my brother's there a lot because he lives 
um, not far far away. And he he tends to spend the day there working and eat with them and give her time because she's been quite nervous about leaving him. Oh, and yeah, at, at times, I think he'd quite like her just to go because he's worried that he's having such an impact on her life. But she doesn't want to leave him in case he's he's ill. Because one of the things you can't tell until you wake up that morning what the day's going to be like. So he generally doesn't plan very much in advance. So I, I say, I'll give you a call at the weekend. Are you out? And Gillian laughs. She says, well, if we can't plan, because some days he wakes up and he's phenomenally good. Other days he wakes up and he's feeling really ill and he's really tired. And there's no pattern. Um, and it's weird because you'd think the week off the chemo, he'd be a lot better. But he's not always, which is strange. Um, but he's, yeah, he's halfway through the chemo. He's got four four more rounds to go. Uh and I think he's his his out his attitude. There's been a noticeable change. I think probably this last round of chemo and the fact that he started thinking about what they're going to do next year and going away in the caravan and things like this. He's he's he used to love going away in the caravan with the dog, maybe his fishing stuff. And they've actually moved it to a, a site permanently now so that he can pop there and do some fishing for a day. And if he's not feeling well, go back to the caravan and have a sleep and stay there for a couple of days. But it's not too far away. So Gillian could leave him there and, and things like that. And that's a big change. I think there's something that he's realised that, you know, he's got to look forward. Whereas before he wouldn't think about the future at all. Now he has started which is is good because it was quite upsetting to think he wouldn't even think about next summer or, you know, when the caravan, when, where, where they were going to go in the caravan. But he's really now started to look and said, you know, well, maybe we'll have a foreign holiday again and maybe we'll do this. And there's lots of maybes, but it's a start. No, it sounds it sounds like the positivity is creeping back in a little bit. And that's that's yes. so important, isn't it, to have that positive mental attitude because that can help. I think in in so many ways definitely definitely and it's quite I, I I think that's one of the things I found most difficult because I've never faced anything like this before so I can't even imagine what it is like to be in his shoes but I'm I'm always trying to make the best of a poor situation I always try and I, my husband I'm, I'm I'm definitely the optimist of our relationship um and you try and pass that on to dad and and he he was you know very obviously and understandably pessimistic about about it all um but there has been something changed and he has started talking about the future which is is it kind of makes you feel so much better that he's looking beyond the next round of chemo he's actually thinking about next year and you know next summer and things like that Rachel thank you so much for spending time talking to us on the podcast really appreciate it I think there's only one way to end this conversation bless bless (laughs) bless bless so that's rachel's story and well rachel and her dad obviously and this sparked a conversation between myself and leslie and we thought it'd be really good to talk to another person who has been involved in a bit of fundraising and who came to pancreatic cancer in a way that wasn't expected but actually she was meant to be involved or certainly that's what Tracy says and I spoke to Tracy about her journey. I'd never actually heard of pancreatic cancer really or or maybe I'd heard of it but not taken any notice of it um, up until about 2013 and my friend's father um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and 
at the time, my mother actually had a terminal diagnosis, but for bladder cancer. So we were kind of going through, you know, the loss of a parent, as it were, um, at the same time. And hers with pancreatic cancer, mine was bladder cancer. And I never really saw myself as somebody as a fundraiser. Um, the whole thought of that actually terrifies me. But she decided she had seen through Pancreatic Cancer UK she had seen the Great Wall of China walk and um, she wanted to do something significant and raise, you know, a significant amount of money as well. And along with a couple of other friends, I, I offered to help her. Um, it wasn't something that I thought that, you know, I, I had another friend that was going with her, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. But I was quite happy to sort of help with the fundraising. And um, we, we, we did all sorts of things. And the long and the short of it is I ended up deciding that I would actually go. And I set about I did actually set about doing my own fundraising um, through some great fun things like um, barn dances and quizzes and, you know, all sorts of things. And um, then as it transpired, to cut a very long story short, the friend then that I was going to be going to China with... Um, actually wasn't able to go. She hurt her knee. And I suddenly found myself going alone, um, to, you know, with this group from pancreatic cancer. I'd done the fundraising to, uh, alongside. And I suddenly found myself alone at the airport with this group of sort of, you know, other people going on this walk for pancreatic cancer. And yet, actually, I, I sort of wasn't the person who was being affected at that stage by pancreatic cancer. Um, it was an incredible, although I felt connected to them because of my mum's, you know, my mum's experience. Um, so I had just lost my mum um, as well at that stage. And it was an incredible experience meeting um, the, the people uh, who'd lost you know, wives, husbands, mothers, fathers. Um, and what really struck me that was different, um, I guess, from my experience with my mum with bladder cancer was my mum sort of survived for about two and a half years. So we, we had some time to sort of adjust around her, uh, around that, you know. Um, but what I found with pancreatic cancer was that the because often when people are diagnosed it's um you know by the time they're they're diagnosed it's it's you know at the pretty much the end game um for them um so it was the length of time and you know with this group of people i was with i found it really distressing to to the shock of finding out somebody has cancer to then finding actually that they pass away within two weeks you know a, a month a couple of months and you know so my experience um was I'd had a bit more I'd had a bit more time to adjust to it and then sort of um you know so that's kind of how I got in, that's kind of how I became aware of pancreatic cancer and how I got involved in the the fund walking and how I ended up walking you know this wall of China um then in just sort of fast forwarding in 2017 um my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um he was diagnosed on the 1st of November uh, last year, and he died on the 11th of November. So he died 11 days after um, after diagnosis. Um, I really felt, you know, it kind of brought it home to me that I was definitely meant to have gone, I was meant to have been involved with pancreatic cancer and to 
of, um, you know, and I felt very grateful because I suddenly had a network of people that, you know, to talk to about it. Um, but my dad's illness, um, uh, actually, he had many signs. He was in his 80s and he was backwards and forwards to his doctor many times. Um, and I don't know whether I don't know whether they were dismissing him because he was 80. He just kept coming home with antibiotics. Um, he had the loss of appetite, the loss of weight. Um, he had a, a persistent cough, which actually turned out to be that the cancer, you know, had gone to his lungs. He was jaundiced. And I was surprised, I suppose, in reflection, in hindsight, that um, he it hadn't been flagged up, that maybe there was something more, you know, some of these things, if you joined up the symptoms, that that's actually what was going on. Um and even when he went to hospital, he was actually in hospital a couple of weeks before he was diagnosed. Um, they saw he had an issue with his liver. Uh, they asked me, actually, if he was a drinker, which my dad wasn't um, a, a drinker. Um, they kept booking him in while he was in hospital to have a scan. Um, and, that, you know, they were doing the nil by mouth thing and uh, then it would be delayed till till tomorrow. You know, it kept getting pushed back and it was like, getting on for like three days before he ended up getting a scan and so he was actually in hospital for two weeks before he was even diagnosed they didn't seem to um to to understand what was going on with him um I'm I'm, I'm upset about that because I think if he'd have been diagnosed quicker uh, perhaps he could have been moved to a hospice for his last days because he died in the hospital and there just isn't you know I don't think there's a facility there for the end of life care um so you know that was um that was that was the end of last year and then unfortunately at the beginning of this year i've had two wonderful um friends of mine um who have both were both given a um a pancreatic a terminal pancreatic cancer diagnosis um they they're both receiving treatment but again it's it's taken time with both of them to get the ball rolling um and then last week, I had a friend's husband uh, was given a, a terminal diagnosis. Um, I just sort of think, you know, I was, I don't really know what else to say. I suppose I was just, I sort of felt I was obviously meant to, to do that uh, Great Wall of China walk for um, Pancreatic Cancer UK. Um, and I'm sort of grateful that, you know, charities, the support exists there. Um, I guess I'm going to be looking at doing a bit more fundraising. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, going back to when your your dad was was diagnosed, knowing what you knew from yeah. your from having the awareness, having the doing all the fundraising previously, was it how much of a comfort was it knowing that there was support out there and not having to find that support to start with? As such, you knew where to go, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, because um, particularly from that that group that I went to uh, went with to China, you know, I straight onto sort of a little messenger group that we had and you know sort of explain what was going on and and I don't know I just I, it, it's even sort of um just having uh, because the speed of it you know it was only 11 days from his diagnosis to when he passed away um but the um just actually being able to talk to other people who've actually had the same experience as you you get some strength from that just actually knowing that you know they understand what you're going through I guess and then again 
this year I'm, I'm so sorry that you're you're going through all of yeah. this with your with your family and and your friends and appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on on the podcast for to talk about this how have you been able to to support your friends whilst they're going through this with the, uh, that little extra knowledge that you you have we've we've got a terrific group with um uh, one of our friends who um who, who was in a hospice um she's actually sort of made a bit of um the, the care in the hospice was so good she sort of bounced back a bit and she's actually currently in a nursing home but we have this um uh we've got a whatsapp group and we send pictures um every day we've got a friend um who's quite good who's found that she's quite a good poet who writes little little poems each. so it's kind of like a little group of us and although we it's too exhausting for her to for us to be there every day for us. We're sending photos, sharing old memories on this little WhatsApp chat group. She knows you're um, there. Oh, she knows we're there. You know, we have one friend who posts lovely pictures of the roses in her garden, which are still blooming at the moment. I sent some autumn, you know, colours yesterday. Oh. Another friend sent, you know, our oh, yeah. friend that um, made a photo book. Um, uh, of all of the things that we've done, actually, she's done a photo book and put in the poems and the pictures and, you know, and shared it with everybody. So, so actually, something like that is a really positive thing to do when, when actually, when somebody's um, not, maybe doesn't have the energy for a lot of visitors, um, that that's actually been a really, really nice thing to do. And, you know, we're all sad at losing our, you know, the fact that we are losing our friend here. Um, and so it's kind of we're supporting each other in sort of sending each other a bit of love every day, you know. Do you know what? We should do that always anyway, whether yeah. we're losing somebody or not, actually. I think that's a really nice just way of being, isn't it? Just remind yeah. everybody we yeah. are here for everybody. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you... You mentioned that you might look at doing some more fundraising yes. stuff in yeah. the future. Is that how you you cope with this then? To sort of try and be positive and find some positive positivity out of it all? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, and also, you know, it's um, this. My husband says I can't walk past a tin without putting, you know, anybody rattles a tin in front of me. I suppose you know it's probably in my nature to to support something, but. I like to choose things maybe that I'd like to support more strongly. Um, and um, I, I, I fundraise for Marie Curie, who are a great help, you know, with my mum. And I've just seen sort of like the amazing sort of stuff that pancreatic cancer have done. I think it's one of these, it's one of these ones. I think why it's, it's sort of, um, even before my dad died, um, why it really, I really took it to my heart was because of, I, I found it quite devastating to see the speed that um, that it took family members and how difficult it is for people to adjust to that. One minute your life's going, you know, normally, um, and then suddenly, you know, it's, it's all turned up so quickly. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, I think that sort of struck a chord with me. And, um, yeah, and I, I do like to do something, you know, I think it's nice to do something positive, Um uh because who knows when you know who who knows who's the next person who's gonna need the help from somebody like you know pancreatic cancer uk um so yeah i i'm um yeah my heart's in it i, I definitely think i've um, got more fundraising in, in me for it so um 
you know, and I'm glad, I'm sort of glad, grateful to sort of be involved in it. And um, especially having had that, this sort of experience, I've come about it sort of almost by accident kind of thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm just really glad, you know, I was obviously meant to be involved somewhere along the line, wasn't I? You know, this, that um, I didn't realise at the time that I got involved with it, uh, that actually I was going to be quite sort of, you know, strongly affected by it. Two fantastic stories and two more people whose lives have been affected by pancreatic cancer. Obviously, this month is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And just by listening to these podcasts and having these podcasts out there, there is a difference being made already. And that, as a podcaster, is very, very humbling. So thank you to everybody who is sharing these, listening to these, learning from these. I know I'm learning a lot as well and I hope this episode shows you that they are making a difference remember to subscribe there is at least one more episode to come before the end of the week the end of the month so you don't want to miss out so if I was you I would definitely subscribe if you have if this is the first episode you've listened to go back to the beginning and have a listen to all the others as well there's some cracking listens in there Uh, but thank you very much for listening if you want to find out more go to our website purplerainbow.co.uk